0: When the Emancipation Proclamation went forth It is said that those who had been slaves Reacted in a number of different ways One For those who learned of it Of course to run And get away as quickly as possible There were of course those who Flat out disbelieved it And out of fear remained in captivity Then there was a group of those who heard it And who believed it But who had lived their lives so long as slaves that they couldn't fathom doing anything but that. They had been released from captivity. They were no longer enslaved, and yet that is all they ever knew. so they remained enslaved to their former masters. The gospel can have a similar effect. There are those who believe and run headlong to Christ. We hear of Some of those miraculous changes in their lives, some who were fornicators, some who were drug abusers, some who were drunkards. Upon turning to Christ by faith, those former desires are completely abandoned. They run headlong, full throttle to Christ and become ardent professors of the faith in word and deed. Then, of course, there are others who simply do not believe the gospel, and they will not. So they remain in their sin. And yet there are others who do believe the gospel, those who put their faith in Christ. And yet for them, in some areas of their lives, perhaps, they have a hard time thinking differently. They have lived so long as a drunkard. They have been so long enslaved to the lust of their flesh that though they trust Christ, though there are evidences of true salvation, they have a hard time thinking differently about life. And so though they are free from enslavement to sin... They continue to serve their former master. Well, we are returning to the book of Ephesians, and particularly this morning we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And there Paul is going to exhort us to walk in the newness of our minds. Before we get there, I want to take a brief survey of where we've been in the book of Ephesians Again, we started this a number of months ago. In chapter one, we saw Paul give us just a brief introduction to the letter, followed by an exhortation to praise God. He said that we are to praise God, particularly because he has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God hasn't left anything out. We praise God. We honor God. We give glory to God because he has given us everything in heaven. He has opened up the storehouses of heaven and poured them out upon us in Christ. In Christ is a repeated phrase in this first chapter to underscore the point that all of the blessings of God are only in Christ. They're not outside of Christ. They're not in Muhammad. They're not in Buddha. They're not in Confucius. They're not in any number of good works that you can do to try to be a better person. The blessing of God is only in Jesus Christ. He talks about how each member of the Trinity was involved in this process. The Father is the one who elected us to be saved, even though all of us deserve the punishment, the wrath, the judgment of God. God the Father poured out his grace upon some. He elected some to receive this blessing. The Son redeemed those whom the Father elected. He poured out his blood on the cross for us. The Spirit sealed those whom the Father elected and the Son redeemed with his blood so that we can be sure that no matter what happens in this life we will receive what is promised to us and all of this Paul prays after that section that we would come to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe Paul says that the same power that God used in raising Jesus from the dead is the power that's at work in us today, at work in the church today. The way that God has worked to see that all of those heavenly blessings are poured out on his people is by infusing them with his power through the Holy Spirit. So Paul prays that we would come to know that power. And then he starts to talk about that power in chapter two. He says that that power that raised Jesus from the dead is operative in us today. God has made us alive together with Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead in deserving the wrath and judgment of God. But God united us with Christ. He made peace between us and himself in Christ. In fact, he's going to go on to say that Jesus Christ is himself our peace. He made peace between us and himself. And in Christ, in the body of Christ, he's made peace between us and one another. In the body of Christ, God brings together all people, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. He brings us all together. This church is a testimony of that. He unites us together as one new man, as one new body, as one new race, some have said, in the body of Christ. We are one new man, one new body, one family, God's family. That's why we call each other brother or sister. God has brought us together in the body of Christ. He has made us into a dwelling place for himself in the spirit. God initiated and revealed this mystery through his holy apostles and prophets. Paul says in Ephesians chapter three, he talks about how God used him to be a minister of the grace of God, to proclaim the truths of the grace of God. And then he prays once again for the church at the end of chapter three. That we would be strengthened with his power, with the might and the strength of God, so that we might do what God has created us to do, which is to glorify him. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That's why we exist as the church. That's why the church exists, not the building, the people, the people of God who are called together into one body, this one new man. We exist as a church. We exist as a people, as God's people for his glory, to glorify him. We're not here for ourselves. We're not here for our own agenda. We're not here for our purposes. We are here to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul transitions in chapter four from laying that groundwork and he urges us in chapter four verse one I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called in light of the fact that this is true in light of the fact that God has made you new. In light of the fact that God has called you into his grace, that he's poured out his grace and his goodness upon you, in light of all the truths that I've just laid out, he says in chapters 1 through 3, now you walk that way. You live that way. In fact, for the rest of the letter of Ephesians, Paul is going to pick up on this idea of what it means to walk how our lives ought to be in light of what God has done for us in Christ. Walk this way, walk that way. But it all starts with this exhortation, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now that first part of chapter four, he reminds us that we've been gifted to fulfill that calling. We are one in Christ, yet we have been individually gifted for the benefit of one another. God has gifted his church with gifted individuals to equip the saints. And as each of the saints are equipped, they are in turn able to use the gifts that they've been given to build up the body. That's how God has designed the church. That's why it's important that we all be checked in, that we all be here, that we all be present, that we all be engaged in the life of the church. Because God has designed the body of Christ to grow as each person uses the gifts that he's given them. That brings us again to our passage for consideration this morning. Again, God has given us new life in Christ. That new life has implications for how we live as Christians. It should affect how our lives speak to others. I like the New King James often talks about the conversation of our lives, our lives. Sorry, that's the the old King James, the original King James. He uses the word conversations, how our lives speak, in other words. We ought to live differently. But living differently starts with how we think, how we think about life, how we think about what God has done for us in Christ. Well, again, we are in chapter four, verses 17 through 24. I'll read that section for us. And then I'll pray, and we'll work our way through that passage. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Father, we thank you again for this day and we thank you for your word, which is truth. Your word does indeed sanctify us. We pray that you would sanctify us by your word this morning, that you'd open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively, collectively, would be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, there are two main points in this text. Again, we are exalted, exhorted to walk with a renewed mind. In order to walk with a renewed mind, Paul is going to say that we must reject the futility of unbelief. That's in verses 17 through 19. And second, we must remember the freedom of new life. That's verses 20 through 24. Reject the futility of unbelief and remember the freedom of new life. Let's look at that first point together. Verses 17 through 19, we should reject the futility of unbelief. Again, Paul says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The now is actually the term therefore in the original. In other words, what he's about to say again is based on what he previously said. All of what Paul said before has led to this point. All of the doctrinal foundation that he laid earlier has led to the obligation and duties that he's laying out in a series of walks. He says, this I say and testify in the Lord. Again, in the original, the force of the statement is that of insistence. I insist that you take this attitude and I insist that you take this attitude in the Lord. As one who has been sent by the Lord for this purpose, Paul is an apostle with the authority of the Lord. I insist that you take this attitude in the Lord as you are in the Lord. This is the kind of attitude that you should have. In light of all of what he just said up until this point, I insist, Paul says, in the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Stop walking like them. Stop thinking like them. He's not using Gentiles here in a derogatory way. A good majority of his audience would have been Gentile in the flesh, technically. The reference is rather to the unbelieving world. Those to whom he is speaking are no longer designated as Gentiles. That designation was intended to draw a distinction between them and the Israelites in the flesh. But those who are in the church, again, are no longer recognized that way. Paul went through great lengths to emphasize the oneness of the body of Christ, as I mentioned earlier. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, but one new man in the church. So he doesn't view them as Gentiles any longer. He views them as brothers and sisters. But again, his point is, don't live like the unbelieving world around you. Don't walk like them. And the walk begins with the way they think. They, the Gentiles, the unbelieving world, walk in the futility of their minds. He says, that should not be true of you, believer. Well, what exactly does that look like? What does it mean to walk in the futility of their minds? Well, it starts with a mind that has exchanged the truth of God for a lie and thus opens itself up to futility and foolishness. Look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Well, what is a mind? At its most basic level, it's a place where thinking and reasoning lie. In context, however, it takes on a slightly nuanced idea. One author put it this way. In the present passage, the concept of disposition or moral attitude takes place. The original purpose of the mind was to be able to comprehend God's revelation, but due to the fall, a person's mind is unable to accomplish this goal. Hence, the futility of minds conveys the idea of not being able to perceive the revelation of God for what it was designed. Thus, its moral attitude or disposition prevents it from achieving its goal of proper moral decisions, which are necessary for life. The believer is not to walk in this kind of moral purposelessness displayed by the Gentiles. I'll explain that a little further as we go along. His point is, though, that the problem with the unbelieving world is that their minds are subject to futility, to emptiness, because of the ignorance that is in them. He says there again, Paul says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of that ignorance. There is an ignorance in them in the unbelieving world. The ignorance is an ignorance of the truth of who God is. They are ignorant of the truth of who God is due to their hardness of hearts. They have hardened their hearts against the truth of who God is. They don't want to know him. They don't want to acknowledge him as God. They'd rather have a God who suits their own liking. The true and living God, the God of Scripture, the only God, is not one who suits their purposes. This is really the epitome of what the Bible calls sin. It is to disregard the truth of God, who God is, in all of his glory, and all of his majesty. It is to exchange that truth for a lie. This is the root of all sin exchanging the truth of who God is in all of his glory and all of his perfections and all of what he has commanded and all of what he requires, exchanging that for a lie is the root of all sin. Those who do this are therefore and rightly alienated from the life of God, the text says. They're separated from him. Isaiah says that our sin creates a separation between us and God. Those who live this way have no part in him. They do not know him in any meaningful or relational way. He says this alienation from the life of God, from the truth of God, has led to a darkening of their understanding. Paul said it slightly differently in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1 verse 18 he says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made, so they are without excuse. He says they should know certain things about God. But instead of accepting the truth of who God is by the things that they can see, the perfections of God on display in what he has created, his wisdom, his power. His divine nature. They reject those things in favor of their own sin. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. then he says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immoral God, incorruptible God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Though they could know certain things about God, the things that they could know about him, they rejected in favor of their own sin. And because they rejected the truth of who God is, their minds drifted off into futility and foolishness. And they started to create for themselves a God of their own liking. In our text, Paul said their minds were darkened. In Romans, he says they left off from the truth of who God was, and so their hearts were darkened. And they drifted down an ever-increasing spiral. God is a creator. He is and sets the standard for all reality and all of the life that he has created. If you move away from that basic truth, the basic truth of who God is, then you've moved away from the true standard of reality. And you find yourself drifting off into futility and foolishness. It is akin to sailing on an open sea, being struck by a storm, but instead of using the compass which constantly points north to guide you back to the right path, you toss the compass into the wind and just let the wind carry you about any way that it will. Our society can be a case study of this. I mean, how do we get to the place in our society where you ask a woman who's vying for the position of Supreme Court justice, which is the highest court in our judicial system, where law is interpreted and applied, where justice should rule, where those selected for the office are given the confidence of the American people to ensure that they think rightly about the law and its application and about the people who who it's being applied to? In this case, the most recent appointee who's a woman was asked, what is a woman? And her response was, I'm not a biologist. How do we get there? For that matter, how do we get to the point in our society where we're struggling even to tell the difference between a man and a woman? Or will we create some new nebulous category that's never existed in the history of humanity? How do we get to the point in our society where we're discussing a woman's right to not be pregnant constitutionally? Which, by the way, the founders of the Constitution never imagined But regardless, we've reached a point to where the conversation has become about choice and autonomy rather than life. How do we get there? How do we get to the point of having so many instances where someone decides to shoot up a school or their place of work or a mall? Or in a recent story where a Ph.D. criminologist attempts to get away with driving halfway across the United States to murder four individuals in cold blood for no reason whatsoever just to see if he could get away with it. How do we get to the point in our society where there are so many instances where children are indulging in these challenges on social media leading to injury and death? How do we get there as a society? Well, we got here as a society because largely our society has rejected the truth of who God is. And again, rejecting the truth of who God is opens the mind of humanity up to futility and foolishness. Moving on, feudal and foolish thinking leads to futile and foolish living. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Again, this is what we've seen. Our society is a living testimony to the truth of God's word. They have largely rejected the truth of who God is. They are ignorant of the truth of who he is. And as they are ignorant of the truth of who he is, their hearts have grown hard as a result. This hardness of heart led to, has led to a callousness. When you get calluses on your hands from physical labor, you lose feeling at that point in your hand, right? The skin becomes hard and sensitive. Likewise, the heart can become hard and insensitive to things of any moral good. One author said the idea here is that they have become progressively enabled. They have a progressive inability of conscience to convict them of wrongdoing. And he says this leads them to a loss of all moral sensitivity. This callousness, this hardness, the loss of all moral sensitivity applies to everything. We tend to think of only sexual sin in this regard, but Paul says in our text that it applies to sensuality, any form of sensuality, and an overall greediness to practice every kind of impurity. Again, in Romans 1, Paul says that this is a part of God's judgment on them. Romans one twenty four. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their flesh, lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonoring passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. One author said, what a withering description. That kind of life, life apart from God is a downward spiral. Which begins with a hardness of heart, moves to a darkness of heart, then to deadness and finally recklessness. The Gentiles, the unbelieving world, have rejected God, the truth of God. They become futile and foolish in their thinking. They have become callously perverse in their living. They have been given over to these things by the same God who they rejected. To them it is their choice, to God it is his judgment. They have become servants to the wanton desires of the flesh and of the mind. Paul commented on this in Ephesians 2 where he says the unbelieving world lives in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. They have become slaves to the corrupt, futile, and foolish passions. Now this doesn't mean that all unbelievers are as sinful or wicked in their imaginations as they could be. But it does mean that they have rejected the truth of God. And therefore, they're not driven by the truth as if following the North Star, but rather by the whims and waves of their futile and foolish passions. Those are the things that drive them. And they can do no good in God's eyes. They are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, children of wrath. He says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That is the judgment of God upon the unbelieving world. After death comes judgment. Paul says to us that we believers are to reject the futility of unbelief. He says, walk no longer as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. How are you doing with this believer? A quote attributed to Charles Spurgeon says this, it is far easier to become a monk or a nun and shut ourselves up alone than to live in the midst of ungodly people and yet ourselves be godly. To trade with the usual followers of commerce and not to fall into their business customs. To mix with the usual host of thinkers yet not to think as they but to endeavor to think thoughts of God and to obey the will of the Most High. How go your thoughts? Are they high in the heavens with the Most High or are they low in the depths of the earth among the filth And the futility and foolishness that resides in the minds of the unbelieving world. How go your thoughts? That's Paul's primary concern here. It's with the way we as believers think, and the fact that we as believers should not think as the unbelieving world. Have you been subject to that withering description? Have you cast aside thoughts of God, the truth of who he is, his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness? Have you cast aside thoughts of who he is and adopted thoughts of who you want him to be? A God who gives you what you think you deserve. A God who should give you whatever you want. A God who's primarily concerned with your pleasure and the satisfaction of your appetites. Have these thoughts caused you to grow callous in some area or another of your life? And that sin, whatever it is for you has been with you for so long that you cannot think of life without it. Futility and foolish thinking has led you to pursue all or some manner of wickedness and sin, some pursuit to practice impurity with greediness. What is it for you, believer? I think most of us know what areas we struggle with. If you're not conscious of some area or another, I'd encourage you to ask someone. As someone who knows Christ, loves Christ, loves you enough to tell you the truth about your sin, again, we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5 speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. That's part of how we serve one another, is that we don't let each other continue to drift off into futility and foolishness. We don't allow each other to stay in our sin. But when we see those things, we call each other on it, and we call each other to repentance. That's a part of how we're supposed to serve one another in the body of Christ. That's something that you should be doing for each other. Nevertheless, we are charged to walk no longer as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And that leads us to our second point. Again, the first point, reject the futility of unbelief. Second, remember the freedom of new life, verses 20 through 24. He says, verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. He reminds them that they have new life in Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ that what? That which he just said the way in which the unbelieving world walks in the futility of their mind the way they live in ignorance of the truth of God the way in which ignorance causes callousness towards sin to the degree that they greedily pursue impurity Paul says that is not the way you learned Christ assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Certainly they have heard of Christ and they were taught in Christ and they know that the truth is in Jesus. That is Paul's assumption here. It doesn't come out in the English, but it's present in the original. But this truth underscores the significance of knowing Christ to know Christ is not mere head knowledge, book knowledge. Jesus is not just a class that we can take and pass by writing certain words on a page from rote memory. The idea here is to know him in a saving way. Jesus said that eternal life is to know the true and living God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent it's in John 17 to know him is to have a relationship with him. It is in this case to have a relationship with the one who is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. It is to have a relationship with him and to have a relationship with him to know him is to have eternal life. Remember, again, the unbelieving world is characterized as being ignorant of God. It is not so for the believer. Through Jesus, we have come to know God. We've come to know the one who is the truth. John reminded us that that's why the eternal word of God was made flesh, in order to explain who God is in all of its fullness. We have come to know God in Jesus. Therefore, the implication is that our lives ought to be different. Again, we have been chosen by God, Ephesians 1. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2. We are a part of the new man that God has created in the church, Ephesians 2. We are set apart for the glory of God, to bring Him glory as His life and light shines forth through us, Ephesians 3. We are those called to walk in a manner worthy of His calling, Ephesians 4. Moving forward again, Paul reminds him that they have new life. He also reminds him that this new life has freed them from sin. Again, verse 20, that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, you were taught what? Verse 22, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Part of what you have been taught, really the effect of what this new life is, Is that you should have put off the old self, the old self, the old you, those old ways of thinking, which led to that old way of living, the selectively ignorant way of thinking, which led to sinfully indulgent ways of living that belonged to your former manner of life. You no longer live that way. That way was corrupt through deceitful desires. We had a baptism last week. I explained at that time that water baptism is commanded in scripture for every believer. It is intended as a symbol of an inward reality. The inward reality of what Paul is what Paul discusses in Romans chapter 6, that we've been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. He says there, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The act of placing a person down in the water and bringing them back up is symbolic of an inward reality. The inward reality is that your former life, God, has slain. Your old way of thinking, your old way of living, God slain buried with Christ in the grave and as he has buried that old way of life in the grave he has raised you to new life he has given the life of Christ to you and so you ought to walk in the newness of life and Paul concludes in Romans 6 that we ought to consider ourselves think of ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God You're no longer the person you were before. You are new. New life is yours. You should have a new way of thinking, a new way of living, a new way of relating to God and the world around you. Do you think of yourself that way, Christian? Do you consider yourself as dead to sin and alive to God? Paul emphasizes that newness of life in Ephesians 2 where he talks about us being raised up with Christ. He mentions that repeatedly. We are alive. We were dead. We are now alive in Christ. Do you think of yourself that way? That is true of you if you are in Christ. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have new life. You are no longer a slave to your former manner of life. That way of thinking that was full of ignorance, that way of thinking that was full of deceitful desires and the satisfaction of the desires. That is no longer you, therefore you must put them aside. He says it another way in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He says the grace of God has come and the grace of God teaches us some things. It trains us some things. It trains us to say no to sin and to say yes to him. And that's the very purpose for which Christ died for us, to redeem us from those things, And to purify us for himself. If you are a Christian that should be true of you. Perhaps you're not perfect at it. Perhaps there are some areas where you're still struggling. And where you're still being sanctified. But your life should not be characterized by your former manner of living. It should be characterized as one who has put off the old life. And one who continues to put off the old life. I like this quote. His author says, Scripture and experience teach us that no one has ever succeeded in shedding the garments of the old life with a solitary, unrepeated action. Those who live holy lives do so by repeated putting-offs. The problem is the old garments are so comfortable and natural. Not only that, many of us have worn them so long that they naturally drape over us, and we scarcely know we're wearing them until the Holy Spirit removes it. If you are fighting lust, it must be daily shed. This is equally true of pride and bitterness and covetousness and all their relatives. Many Christians stumble because they don't realize this. But the truth is, our sins will have to be put off daily as long as we live. The truth of this passage is that we have already put off the old self. God did that for us when we came to faith in Christ. But we have to think that way. And in our minds, we have to continue to think that way daily so that we don't cling to those things that have already been removed from us, those things that we've already been freed from. This is a part of what it means to be a Christian. If you're curious to know what it means to be a Christian, to be a Christian is not to be the same person that you were before. It is not 2.0 you. A Christian is one who has been given a completely new life by God through Jesus Christ. A Christian is born again, meaning they are born from above. God gives them a completely new kind of life. They have the life of God flowing through them now because of Jesus Christ. And therefore, they are equipped with the resources needed to say no to sin. And they're given new desires to desire to do what is right and to say no to sin. And they have been freed from the bondage of sin. We don't claim our own ability as believers. We don't claim our own strength. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in the Lord and in knowing him. We have new life. This new life is freed us from sin. And this new life is strengthened by the truth to live in a way that pleases God. Verses 23 and 24. He says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put off put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness this is still a part of what they have been taught what they have learned what they ought to what ought to be true of those who know Jesus he says to be renewed in the spirit of your minds the tense in the original indicates that this is an ongoing action The believer is constantly being renewed in the spirit of their minds, the spirit of their minds, their innermost being. This takes us full circle to where we began. Again, the believing world is characterized by ignorance. Their foolish hearts are darkened. Their minds are darkened. They reject the truth of God and thus drift into futile and foolish thinking. Not so for the believer. Again, we've been given new life, and part of that new life involves God actively working in our minds to renew them ultimately he does this by means of his truth. Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Paul prays, says in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Colossians chapter three, if then you have been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the earth for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Jesus is your life. Your mind ought to be where he is. God is actively in the process of renewing our minds, renewing the way we think, and he does this by means of his truth, his word. In other words, we are not like those slaves who, upon hearing the Emancipation Proclamation, could not conceive of living any other way of life than the life of a slave, because God is actively working in us, working in our minds, working in our innermost parts to renew our minds for his glory. Paul is going to say that this renewal of the inner person is a thing that should encourage us even when our bodies start to fall apart, right? Second Corinthians four, we don't lose heart, though the outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. As we looked at the earlier part of chapter four back in November, it's no wonder why God has given to the church. Those who are particularly gifted at teaching and preaching, and it is no wonder why the gathering of the body of Christ is so important for the believer. When we gather together, we gather together around the word of God. We sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to encourage and exhort one another with the truth. The song choice on Sunday morning is not haphazard. It's intended to encourage us to sing truth to one another. Our prayers together ought to be filled with the truth of God. As we pray the prayer of praise, we praise the God who is revealed in scripture and what he has done. As we confess, we do so in response to the word of God. As we give thanks, we give thanks knowing that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. As we come before God with our petitions, we do so knowing that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. As we gather together around the word of God on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings, we read the word of God, expound upon the word of God, verse by verse, section by section, book by book. We do so in order to be taught the whole counsel of God, not just the things we want to hear. We gather together around the word of God to have our minds renewed together as one body in Christ. This is why believers must prioritize our Sunday morning gatherings. This should not be an optional thing for you. Other things as they come up on Sunday mornings are optional. The gathering together of God's people should never be optional for the Christian. This is how we stay united. We unite around the truth of God's word. Do you prioritize the word of God in your life? Do you see that God has designed the body of Christ to that end? That the word of God would be prioritized. And that we would use it to strengthen and encourage one another. Again, he says that we have been taught to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, were renewed through his truth to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Just as we had to put off the old self at conversion, the putting on of the new self also happened at conversion. As two sides of the same coin. Again, we're buried, the old self died or raised, the new self is alive. We have put on the new self. This is who we are. We are now saints of God. We are now a part of the one new man that Paul mentioned in chapter two. We are born again. Second Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This new person is created after the likeness of God. That's Genesis imagery. In case you didn't catch that. Just as in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Adam was made after his likeness in the image of God. So also this new creation, the church, is made in the likeness of God through the new birth that is given. This new creation, this new man is created in true righteousness and holiness because that is who God is. He is righteous. He is holy. So we are made in his image in Christ On well, this passage, Paul continues his prior exhortation that we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We have been called to Christ. We have been given new life in Christ. We need to think that way. We need to think that way and we need to live as if it is true. God has given us new life. He has given us the ability to respond to that new life and light of that new life. Thus, Paul says, reject the futility of unbelief and remember the freedom of your new life in Christ. If you don't know yourself to be a Christian, then you cannot respond to this message. You cannot and probably do not even want to. You don't see the relevance of it. You don't see its importance. You probably think you don't have any problems with what you're doing. That's not the way God sees it. You can deceive yourself, but you cannot deceive him. Those who are not in his son, he gives over in judgment, in part by allowing the deceitfulness of sin to overwhelm their senses so they don't even know how bad they are. It's like the fish that doesn't know they're wet. Your only hope is to fling yourself upon Christ, to beg him to save you from your sin and from his judgment, which is yet to come. If you are in Christ, remember, you are a new creation. So Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We have job to do. We have work to do. God is working in us, but we must also work. I'll leave you with this quote. We have our part to do in dressing ourselves with the divine wardrobe. For here, clothes do make the man and the woman. We must daily set aside the rotting garments of the old man. We must formally reject sensuality and selfish pride and materialism and bitterness. We must read the word of God and ask God to renew our minds through the spirit. We must work out our salvation by doing these things that will develop a biblical mind. We must put on our new shining garments of light. We must put on who we are. Father, thank you for who we are. Thank you for who you've made us in Christ. Thank you that you are the one doing the work of redemption in us. Help us as your people to walk in the newness of this life, the newness of this mind that you have given us, and help us to do this for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.